As FIFA president, Sepp Blatter took the stage at their headquarters in Zurich, Switzerland in 2010. It felt like the world was at a standstill. For years, countries had undergone huge campaigns to sway the FIFA committee's votes in their favor. Now they'd finally know who was going to host the 2018 and 2022 World Cup. The U.S. Soccer Federation was confident it would win the 2022 bid. Ahead of FIFA's vote, the American committee, led in part by former U.S. President Bill Clinton, had given a flashy presentation featuring actor Morgan Freeman and current U.S. President Barack Obama. Plus, America already had the necessary facilities in place, giant stadiums, plenty of hotels, and millions of fans. So when Blatter cracked open the envelope with the name of the winning bidders, the U.S. committee waited with bated breath. Then he announced the vote. The 2018 World Cup would be hosted by Russia and the 2022 World Cup would be hosted by Qatar. The U.S. Federation was crushed by the statement. Defeated, Bill Clinton marched back to his hotel room. He put a lot of energy into this bid. It felt like the U.S. was a shoo-in for the tournament. According to Australian newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald, when Clinton got to his hotel room, he reportedly grabbed an ornament from a bedside table. Then, with all his might, the 64-year-old threw it at a mirror, shattering it on impact. It made no sense to the American delegation. Qatar was about the size of Connecticut and didn't have any of the infrastructure required to host a massive event like the World Cup. And in the summer months when the tournament would be held, Qatar's temperature could swell to 122 degrees Fahrenheit. Both players and fans would be at a fatal risk of heat stroke. One of the most obvious advantages Qatar's bid had over America's was the $200 million they'd spent on lavish ceremonies and consultants, not to mention the untraceable amount of private funds used to lobby for hosting rights. All the cash swirling around the Qatari bid prompted many to wonder, had that money found its way into the pockets of FIFA officials illegally? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the FIFA scandal surrounding the 2022 World Cup. While officials have celebrated Qatar as the first Middle Eastern nation to host the tournament, there's plenty of evidence to suggest votes were influenced by payments from Qatar's bid committee. 
Today, we'll talk about the history of FIFA, the bidding process for the 2022 World Cup, and how Qatari officials ingratiated themselves with members of the FIFA organization. Next time, we'll discuss some of the conspiracies regarding the scandal. First, we'll take a big picture look at FIFA and discuss whether President Sepp Blatter operated a mafia-like crime syndicate. Then, we'll explore the 2018 and 2022 bidding process to determine if Qatar bought their way to the top. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Every four years, FIFA, the International Governing Association of Football, or soccer for us Americans, hosts one of the biggest sporting events on the planet. You've probably heard of it before. It's called the World Cup. The 2018 final between France and Croatia had an average live audience of over half a billion spectators worldwide. That's more than the population of the United States, Canada, and Mexico combined. But FIFA's global popularity and profits only took off in the last few decades. In fact, when the inaugural World Cup was held in Uruguay in 1930, only 13 countries participated. Back then, FIFA was focused on administering soccer's rules and organizing the event's games. The organization was tiny, with fewer than 10 staff members and limited funds. To give you a sense of just how small the operation was, FIFA's general secretary, his spouse, and their pets lived in the same building as the company's office. It was so cramped, they couldn't even hold meetings there. But 44 years after that first tournament, the trajectory of the organization changed. 
1974, Brazilian lawyer João Avalanji was elected president of FIFA. Avalanji wanted to turn the organization into the soccer equivalent of the United Nations, complete with its own governing body, elections, courts, and global initiatives. For most of its early history, FIFA was laser-focused on expanding soccer's growth exclusively in Europe, but Avalanji had his eyes set on global domination. He believed the World Cup should be a massive event that stole the global spotlight whenever it was held. And as a member of the International Olympic Committee, he knew exactly what it took to put on a grand spectacle. When Avalanji was elected president, only 16 teams could qualify for the World Cup. Now, under his leadership, FIFA doubled the number of available spots in the competition to 32 countries. He also increased membership by opening up the competition to over 200 nations and territories. The World Cup also presented a unique opportunity for lower-income countries. Now they could compete against and get a chance to defeat more developed nations. Thanks in part to FIFA's initiatives, soccer was no longer a predominantly European sport. It was a global game played in virtually every corner of the world. But Avalanji didn't want to wait for the attention to arrive once every four years. He wanted constant fame and praise. So he established other events like the Women's World Cup, continental tournaments, and youth competitions, all of which monopolized FIFA's control over the soccer industry. And with greater popularity came more money. FIFA began charging hefty sums for the tournament's broadcasting rights and corporate sponsorships. Adidas and Coca-Cola signed onto lucrative sponsorship deals that helped fund FIFA's expansion. At the start of Avalanji's presidency, soccer's governing body had a revenue of $25 million. By the end of his term in 1998, FIFA had $4 billion in the bank. With this influx of cash, Avalanji helped finance national soccer federations, hoping to grow the sport in other countries. And in turn, those federations often supported the FIFA president when he was up for re-election. But where there's big money in sports, there's often corruption. Under Avalanji's tenure, FIFA partnered with a Swiss sports marketing company called International Sport and Leisure, or ISL. The business handled the sales of TV rights to air the World Cup. The U.S. Justice Department found that during the 80s and 90s, Avalanji and his associates accepted over $40 million worth of bribes, primarily in exchange for broadcasting privileges. By the time FIFA's ethics court ruled on the matter in 2013, Avalanji was no longer in charge of the organization. As a result, he never faced punishment. At this point, Avalanji's right-hand man, a Swiss official named Joseph Sepp Blatter, had taken over. In the documentary, The Men Who Sold the World Cup, Blatter was described as, quote, the white-haired overlord of world football. Previously, he'd served as FIFA's development officer and later as its general secretary. 
While an internal investigation failed to directly implicate Blatter in the ISL bribery scandal, a FIFA report called his behavior, quote, clumsy. Investigators suggested Blatter was likely aware of the ISL deals, but may have turned a blind eye to them. Blatter stayed in power by keeping the money flowing to his supporters. When he was campaigning for the FIFA presidency in 1998, Blatter declared he'd increase funding for every country's soccer association. If elected, they'd receive a quarter of a million dollars each year for operating costs and another $400,000 to construct new facilities. One of Blatter's biggest supporters was Qatar's top soccer official, Mohammed bin Haman. He was a billionaire businessman who later became president of the Asian Football Confederation. Bin Haman oversaw all the FIFA member states from Japan to Lebanon. Right before Blatter's re-election, the Qatari billionaire organized a handful of secret meetings primarily with delegates from African soccer federations. Because each FIFA member state was entitled to one vote, and Africa has over 50 countries, winning the continent's favor could single-handedly keep Blatter in office, a play that was also in Bin Hammam's favor. Following the meeting, word spread that Bin Hammam had given each delegate $50,000 in cash suggesting he'd bribed votes to support Blatter. While we don't know all the details, we do know Blatter won the election. He received 111 votes, while his opponent only got 80. The African states seem to have tipped the balance in favor of the Swiss administrator, after all. Between Avalanji's kickbacks and Bin Hammam's gifts, Bribery was becoming increasingly common with soccer's governing body. Through it all, Blatter managed to stay above the fray, never accepting or offering any kickbacks directly. And it paid off. From 1998 to 2015, Blatter was consistently re-elected president. During his tenure, the tournament made history as South Korea and Japan became the first Asian nations to dually host the World Cup in 2002. Then, in 2010, South Africa became the first African country to stage the event. Blatter seemed committed to growing the sport worldwide. By that point, FIFA was already a multi-billion dollar machine. Soccer had secured its position as the most popular sport on the planet, and the World Cup Finals had attracted more viewers than any other sports broadcast in history. Around this time, the organization was reviewing bids from countries wanting to host the 2018 World Cup. Because the tournament was such a grand undertaking, FIFA usually decided on a host country many years in advance. This way, the winner had enough time to prepare. The application process was a lengthy one. National committees first registered their bids with the organization and made a proposal for why they were the best candidate to stage the tournament. This was an opportunity for countries to show they could promote the event, build world-class stadiums, and host an influx of fans. After federations submitted their proposals, 
FIFA sent an evaluation group to each country. Bid committees escorted these visiting soccer officials through local stadiums, training facilities, hotels, and other sites required for the success of the event. Once the evaluation group finished their tour, they judged each country and discussed their findings. Then members of FIFA voted on the host. Today, every member's vote counts equally, but during that election, things went a bit differently. That year, the host nations were decided by a select group of 24 FIFA officials known as the Executive Committee, or EXCO. It was a motley crew of administrators, billionaires, and former soccer stars. Understandably, the nations in contention were eager to please EXCO members. But just as the 2010 vote approached, FIFA announced a big change. Due to global economic uncertainty, the organization wanted a longer-term commitment from its sponsors. As a result, they'd be selecting the 2018 and 2022 hosts at the same time. Coming up, two unlikely bidders score a huge win. Of all the mysteries in the world, perhaps the greatest is, when will it all end? Or rather, how? Hi listeners, it's Richard and Molly from the Spotify original from ParCast, Unexplained Mysteries. With the end of the year approaching, Unexplained Mysteries is taking a closer look at some of the most infamous end-of-the-world scenarios in a five-part doomsday special you do not want to miss. Throughout the month of December, discover the many ways people have prophesized our demise, from a religious apocalypse and an alien invasion to threats from space and nuclear warfare. We'll even explore how advancements in technology could be our undoing. Do any of us have anything to truly be scared of? Therein lies the mystery. Listen to the Unexplained Mysteries five-part doomsday special, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now back to the story. Amidst looming economic uncertainty during the Great Recession of 2009, FIFA sought longer commitments from its sponsors and made an unprecedented move by accepting bids for two upcoming tournaments, the 2018 and 2022 World Cup. At the time, FIFA was itching to bring the games back to Europe. 
After all, it was the birthplace of soccer. It was also where the sport's governing body was headquartered. But FIFA didn't want the tournament to take place on the same continent back-to-back. So they'd entertain bids from European countries for 2018, then select a host from a different continent for the 2022 event. Several European nations began vying for the 2018 tournament. Aside from England, there was also Russia, a joint bid from Spain and Portugal, and another joint bid from Belgium and the Netherlands. For the 2022 event, countries like the U.S., Qatar, Australia, Japan, and South Korea all joined the race. Almost every nation had a compelling case to host the World Cup. Each already had the necessary stadium infrastructure in place or the resources to build arenas for the tournament in time. That is, with the exception of Qatar and Russia. Some of the bidders, like the U.S., Japan, and South Korea, had even hosted the World Cup previously, which made them strong frontrunners to do so again. Of all the 2018 bidders, England appeared to be at the top. It had a rich history with the sport, dating back to modern soccer's creation there in 1863. Since then, the country had constructed massive venues like the 90,000-seat Wembley Stadium. Plus, they'd built up a passionate fan base. Britain's English Premier League was the most watched soccer league in the world. The average game scored 12.3 million viewers. The English bid also had the support of major figures, including Prince William, Prime Minister David Cameron, and soccer star David Beckham, whom FIFA officials clamored for a photo with. When it came to the 2022 tournament, the U.S. was confident it had the strongest bid. America's presentation included 18 venues with an average capacity of 78,000 seats, far more than any other country. And because of the sheer amount of immigrants living in the U.S., almost every team participating in the World Cup had a built-in fan base. The American Bid Committee also received support from a star-studded cast, including actors Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. It made sense to pull out the big guns. After all, there was a lot at stake. According to some metrics, the 2006 World Cup in Germany stimulated the country's economy by $3.3 billion and created 50,000 jobs in the months leading up to the event. Some foreign policy experts said the event was good PR for the nation as a whole, proving it was now more inclusive by hosting the games. Which only made the competition stiffer. Many countries were willing to dole whatever cash it took to gain hosting rights, but England saw another way to gain the upper hand. Their committee hired spies to monitor the competition. The English Bid Committee recruited a former MI6 officer named Christopher Steele for the job. With Russia as one of their biggest and wealthiest competitors, they felt Steele was the perfect candidate. He'd specialized in Russian affairs. But after doing some digging, he found Russia's presentation to be rather weak. Vladimir Putin appeared apathetic about his country's bid, which could hurt the country during the voting process. 
However, that changed after Russia won the hosting rights for the 2014 Winter Olympics. Suddenly, Putin came to recognize how sports could boost his country's image and his personal reputation. Afterwards, he threw his full support behind the World Cup bid. If Russia hosted the tournament, nations with weak diplomatic ties to Russia would almost certainly find themselves in Putin's territory. It would mean that a diverse group of fans would get to see a fun side to Russia, a far cry from the dark headlines that often surrounded the Kremlin. Plus, hosting a prestigious event like the World Cup could distract people and the press from Putin's more controversial decisions, like cracking down on political dissidents and potentially invading Crimea. Winning the World Cup bid could also boost Putin's domestic popularity. Even though the Russian leader wasn't a huge fan of soccer, it was one of the most popular sports among his constituents. Conversely, this meant losing the bid could be a devastating blow to Putin's approval ratings. When Putin realized Russia faced slim odds, he reached out to his country's oligarchs and enlisted their help in supporting the bid. They were reportedly instructed to do whatever it took to curry the favor of FIFA officials and win votes for the 2018 tournament. Russia wasn't the only country who'd stop at nothing to secure the World Cup. In the 2022 bidding, Qatar was also eager to win FIFA's support. The tiny but oil-rich state seemed to have insurmountable challenges, at least on paper. It had few soccer teams and no stadiums with the 80,000-seat capacity required to host a World Cup final. The country's largest venue, Khalifa International Stadium, could barely hold half that amount. If Qatar were to host, they planned to build nine giant stadiums, each of which could take up to three years to construct under normal circumstances. And there wasn't nearly enough space in the capital city of Doha to host the games. Contractors would essentially have to build an entirely new city, creating more public transit lines, hotels, and restaurants, just to accommodate the influx of tourists. Even if Qatar pulled off the impossible and built everything in the 12 years leading up to the tournament, no amount of money could change the country's dangerously hot temperature in the summer. June and July, when the games would be played, could reach a sweltering 122 degrees Fahrenheit, dangerous for athletes and fans alike. As if that weren't enough, Organizations like Amnesty International had other concerns. To construct new stadiums, Qatar would have to rely on its large migrant worker population. These foreign laborers were subject to Qatar's kafala system, in which employers have control over where, when, and how their employees lived and worked. Some activists refer to the practice as a modern-day form of slavery and many groups worried about the human rights violations that would undoubtedly occur as Qatar rushed construction to meet their deadlines. Human rights groups also criticized the country for its systemic discrimination against women, its repression of gay, bisexual, and transgender people, and the regime's censorship of the press, 
policies that made Qatar an unsafe destination for many fans and journalists covering the event. Still, the leader of Qatar, Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani, was committed to finding a way around these obstacles. Like Putin, he wanted his country to benefit from the prestige and profit that comes along with hosting the World Cup. He imagined his oil-rich state being lauded as a cultural powerhouse known for art and sports, not just petrol. That may sound like a grand ambition for a country of less than three million people, but Qatar had virtually unlimited funds to make it happen. Thanks to its oil revenues, the country had one of the world's largest sovereign wealth funds, with tens of billions of dollars at its disposal. Even Sheikh Tamim had a personal fortune worth more than a billion dollars. And Qatar's officials had no problem using that money to buy influence. In the 90s, Qatar's leader had loaned over $130 million to create the international news bureau Al Jazeera. The company's content is now consumed by over 250 million households in over 100 countries. Other competing news outlets like The Economist have examined whether the Qatari royal family used the network to advance their agenda and wield more global power. Right before the World Cup bidding process, Qatar made another splashy investment. In the summer of 2008, the country's sovereign wealth fund paid over $2 billion to acquire London's luxury retailer, Harrods. As one of the most famous department stores on the planet, the London Harrods receives about 15 million visitors every year. By purchasing the shop, Qatar had acquired a cultural relic. Like fancy department stores or robust media companies, soccer was seen as a key asset for leaders looking to revitalize their image. In the early 2000s, Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich, a close friend of Putin's, bought the Chelsea Football Club, an English Premier League team, for $190 million. In the years he owned the club, from 2003 until 2022, Chelsea enjoyed the greatest success of its 106-year history. Afterwards, some soccer fans who'd held an unfavorable opinion of Russia warmed up to the country, as well as its wealthy oligarchs. The way they saw it, Russia was investing in Britain's economy and helping one of England's most popular teams rise to the top. Even former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson welcomed Russian diplomats to his country. In 2012, when he was London's mayor, he jokingly encouraged them to settle their disputes in his city's courts rather than Moscow's. Qatar seemed to hope for similar results. According to former British intelligence officer Christopher Steele, if Qatar became the first Middle Eastern nation to host a major sports competition, that would give the country and its leader major credibility in the region and around the world. Despite Russia and Qatar's eagerness, they didn't seem to be engaging in any foul play, at least not out in the open. But behind closed doors, FIFA officials were whispering a very different story. 
Coming up, a bombshell report drops on the eve of FIFA's vote. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Now, back to the story. In December of 2010, FIFA was scheduled to vote on a European host for the 2018 World Cup and a non-European host for the 2022 tournament. In the months leading up to the decision, soccer delegations submitted their proposals and toured FIFA officials through their countries, making the best case for their nation. But FIFA's deliberations were interrupted in October of that year, when the Sunday Times of London exposed corrupt members participating in the bidding process. Prior to the vote, undercover journalists posed as American business executives and met with members of FIFA's executive committee. There, the undercover reporters tempted FIFA delegates with payouts to vote for America to see if the bribery claims were true, and they captured more than they ever could have imagined on film. During these conversations, they secretly recorded Nigerian ex-co-delegate Amos Adamu as he agreed to rank the U.S. his second choice during the bidding process. He admitted he'd already promised to rank another country first, but for the price of $800,000, he'd support the U.S. bid if his first choice fell through. The implication was stunning. One of the bidders seemed to have already bribed Adamu for his vote, and now he was willing to accept a second. The same reporters had a similar discussion with Tahitian ex-co-delegate Reynal Tamari. He told the undercover journalists he'd already been offered bribes as high as $12 million for his vote. According to the Sunday Times, FIFA's code of ethics forbade its officials from accepting bribes, gifts, or other advantages, which meant the journalists had caught Adamu and Tamari red-handed, violating FIFA's rules. The allegations cast doubt on FIFA's upcoming vote, as well as the association's overall integrity. Three days after the report was published, FIFA provisionally suspended Adamu and Tamari from voting on the 2018 and 2022 World Cup bids. But their suspensions caused two new problems. Because FIFA had taken disciplinary action, the bidding process became even more challenging for prospective host nations like England and the U.S. If Adamu and Tamari had accepted their suspensions, it's possible they could have been replaced by deputies in their confederations who'd vote in their stead. But once they appealed their suspensions, it seemed they were not allowed to have a replacement. 
Instead, Exco cast two fewer votes, 22 instead of 24, giving dark horse candidates like Russia and Qatar slightly better odds. And since Tamari intended to vote for Australia, Qatar's rival, the nation's prospects improved. In addition to the lost votes, the Sunday Times had created another problem. The English Bid Committee worried their nation's journalists had endangered their chances at hosting the World Cup. Apparently, they felt the more they exposed FIFA's corruption, the less likely Exco members were to vote for them. So on November 3rd, just a couple weeks after the Sunday Times expose was printed, senior members of England's bid committee made a request to the BBC. They reportedly asked the director general not to air an upcoming segment on FIFA's alleged corruption and to instead keep it to themselves. But the BBC didn't comply. They ran the piece anyway. And later that month, they took it a step further. The network claimed three other senior FIFA officials had accepted over $100 million worth of bribes throughout the 1990s in exchange for marketing rights to the World Cup. Despite the accusations, England was still in the running to host because on November 17th, just a couple weeks before FIFA planned to cast its votes, the organization released its inspection reports. FIFA listed their concerns about certain bids, and officials were especially critical of Russia and Qatar's proposals. Inspectors worried about Russia's, quote, vastness and remoteness from other countries. And FIFA's report called Qatar's high summer temperature, quote, a potential health risk for players, officials, the FIFA family, and spectators. Which made sense. I agree. However, officials were also concerned about awarding the tournament to Australia, Japan, and South Korea. They said the time zone difference made it harder to sell broadcasting and marketing rights. Meanwhile, FIFA officials only had minor issues with the English and American proposals. In fact, those nations made some of the best cases for hosting the 2018 and 2022 World Cups, respectively. By contrast, the flaws in the Russian and Qatari bids appeared to disqualify them completely. They were the only two countries to be flagged as medium and high risk. But in the end, that didn't seem to matter. On December 2nd, 2010, it was time for FIFA's Exco to cast their votes on the 2018 and 2022 venues. The committee gathered inside a subterranean boardroom at the organization's headquarters in Zurich, Switzerland. After their decision was made, President Sepp Blatter appeared before a packed auditorium to make an earth-shattering announcement. The 2018 World Cup would be played in Russia, and the 2022 tournament would be hosted by Qatar. A moment of shock was followed by a burst of celebration, at least on Qatar's behalf. They would be the first Middle Eastern nation to ever host the competition. Despite this giant milestone in sports history, American soccer pundits criticized the decision. 
U.S. soccer president Sunil Gulati believed political factors had muddled the Americans' bid. He suspected political alliances played a decisive role in FIFA's vote. Fox Sports commentator Eric Winalda was less cautious about his accusations. The former American soccer player said, quote, Is this about soccer or about natural gas and oil? That's what has just won. Qatar just bought the World Cup. And they weren't the only Americans suspicious of the vote. In the background, the Federal Bureau of Investigations had been keeping a very close eye on the International Soccer Organization, and they were already putting together a compelling case against the governing body. As news spread of the Bureau's investigation, soccer fans around the world offered their own theories about FIFA's corruption. Like conspiracy theory number one, FIFA operated like a mafia-style crime syndicate, with President Sepp Blatter acting as the godfather. Or conspiracy theory number two, Qatar cheated to win the hosting rights to the 2022 World Cup. When FIFA began in the early 1900s, its goal was to unite nations from all over the world by making soccer an international sport. But by the 1990s, a new priority emerged, money. And with the help of authoritarian regimes, corrupt soccer officials, and a couple billion dollars, FIFA certainly hit the jackpot. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Ben Bishop is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Ben Hanani, edited by Amber Von Schassen and Lori Gottlieb, Fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Bradley Klein, recorded by Freddie Rivera, produced by Bruce Kotovich, and sound designed by Anthony Valsic. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Carter Roy. An alien invasion, nuclear warfare, the second coming. How will the world end? Will we be prepared? And will it matter? This December, join Unexplained Mysteries for a five-part doomsday special examining the many theories about humanity's ultimate demise. We're counting down to the end of the year with the most infamous end-of-the-world scenarios of all time. Listen to the Unexplained Mysteries five-part doomsday special, free and only on Spotify.